cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, I was privileged to travel to the University of Chicago to the Booth School of Business, where I got to sit down with Eugene Fama, Nobel Laureate, Chicago Booth School of Business, um, founder of the Efficient Market Hypothesis, creator of effectively uh, the 3, 5, and 7 uh, Fama French factor model, Basically, the father of modern finance. I don't know how else to describe him. Along with his best student, David Booth, co-founder of Dimensional Funds, the person that the Booth School of Business is named after. What can I tell you? I flew out to Chicago, uh, basically went to the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, where they were celebrating this relationship that both Fama and Booth have had for literally 50 years. I got to sit down with the two of them for an hour in front of about 500 people in the audience, including a lot of students from the Booth School, as well as other notables who were in attendance. And Fama is notoriously press shy. He does not do a whole lot of um, interviews with the media. This was just a delight. I can't begin to say how just awesome he was. He's a provocateur. He likes to say things that are very much um, contrarian. He's a little bit, you know, if Fama was on Twitter, he would be a troll. He loves to tweak people, especially his buddy and fellow Nobel laureate Richard Thaler. Uh, He was busting his chops about behavioral finance, basically saying it's all just pushback to the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, David Booth, also very insightful, had a lot of things to say. There's obviously a tremendous amount of respect between the two of these guys. I could babble about my experience in Chicago for hours, but rather than do that, why not just say my conversation with Eugene Fama and David Booth? There is so much material to cover. We're going to Keep this to about four hours. We'll take a break for dinner, (laughs) and then we'll finish up before midnight. Um, So I really don't have to introduce either of these gentlemen, but let me just put a little more flesh on the bones of what what the dean started with. Obviously, Gene is best known for not only the efficient market hypothesis, but his research on portfolio theory, asset pricing, the Fama French factor models, He is the 2013 recipient of the uh, Nobel Prize in in economics. And I like the sentence that the Nobel group used, quote, for for his work showing, quote, stock price movements are impossible to predict in the short term and that new information affects prices almost immediately, which means markets are efficient. David co-founded Dimensional with another University of Chicago alum, 
Rex Sinquefeld in 1981. The firm now employs 1,400 people who help manage $579 billion. Over the 20 years ending in 2018, 85% of Dimensional's equity and fixed income funds beat their benchmark. The rest of the industry, just 17%. And that's based on much of the work that Professor uh, Fama did. So, so let's jump into the history um, of both Gene and David and, and see where it goes. Gene, during your last, I, I feel weird calling you Gene. It really should be <laughs> Professor Fama, shouldn't it? Um, during your last year at Tufts, you worked for Professor Harry Ernst, who had a side gig running a stock market forecasting service. And you did research for him. What sort of work did you do with this stock forecasting research? I was devising schemes to beat the market. And, and, <laughs> and how did that work out? It worked out fine. On the, on the data that I fitted to, didn't work out fine on the holdout sample, never did. Mm -hmm. So that was a lesson that uh, data dredging can turn up things that aren't really there. And how did that research into forecasting the stock market impact your thinking about whether or not the market could be beat? Well, when I came here uh, to Chicago, uh, research on asset prices had begun to get going in a really serious way. And many people were interested in the question of how well stock prices adjusted to uh, new information. To put it in context, I always say, it started because of computers. Before 1960, you really didn't have a serious computer to do data analysis on. And with the coming of computers, uh, statisticians, economists were, they had a new toy to, to play with, and stock, stock prices were easily available. So that was one of the first things they started to study. And then immediately, the economists said, well, how do we expect prices to behave if the world was working properly, in other words? if markets were efficient. They weren't using that term, but that's what they were after. And there were all kinds of theories proposed that had lots of shortcomings to them. And a little at a time, we came to the efficient markets hypothesis. And you were, in your senior year at Tufts, you had applied here, but you never heard back from the school. Right. Is this an urban legend, or is this true? No, it's true. <laughs> so, so what happened? Uh, I, called, I called in... Uh, the dean of students, Jeff Metcalf, answered, that wouldn't happen today. The school is so much bigger, the dean of students doesn't even have a telephone. <laughs> Way too important for that. Mm -hmm. but, so he answered the phone, we chatted for a while, and he said, well, I hate to tell you, but we don't have any record of your application. So what kind of grades do you have at Tufts? And I said, pretty much all A's. He said, well, we have a scholarship for someone from Tufts. Do you want it? <laughs> And then that's how, I, that's how I ended up at the University of Chicago. So, so you come here as a student. You're, you're finishing your work. Eventually, Merton Miller says to you, hey, do you want to stick around and keep doing the sort of research you're doing? Is that how you became a, a professor here? Uh, yeah, I, was, I had offers at some other places, um, but lots of the places turned me down. They said I was too Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that meant, actually, but yeah. no, it was These unacceptable guys know anyway. exactly what that means. <laughs> but but uh, it was very rare to hire somebody from your own PhD program onto the faculty. There had only been one or two before that. 
So, David, you had a somewhat different experience. You grow up in Kansas. You get a BA in economics and a master's from the University of Kansas. What made you decide to come to Chicago? Well, I did a little bit of reading um, in finance. Um, and um, my, I had a finance professor there that had gotten his PhD here. And he said, finance is exploding, uh, really emerging as a, an academic discipline. And, it's really uh, one of the, the epicenters is clearly Chicago. And uh, so I thought, well, the guy should be fun, maybe even be a professor. So I applied here and, uh, um, and started to study. Took Gene's class, my very first class. And, and is, was the dean correct? Was that literally 50 years ago? Yeah, 50 years ago this fall. Wow. It was, you know, it, it uh, was a first year that uh, Chicago had a football team in 34 years, you know? <laughs> and you had written about your experience taking a class with Gene. You called it um, life-changing and, and transformative. How, how, in what ways was it life-changing? Well, life-changing <clears throat> it led to a career. I mean, <laughs> can't have much of a bigger change than that. Uh, but it's um, life-changing, and then I think all, all everybody here probably... Um, I'd like to think of themselves as um, having a public purpose. Yeah, at the end of it all, when you get to be my age, you, know, you want to look back and think somehow the world was better off for your having been here. And so these ideas that were coming out, uh, you know, the, the essence of efficient markets uh, was uh, uh, already well developed. He had already coined the term. Um, and you can see this is enormously useful. If you look at the the way money was managed 50 years ago, people were getting ripped off. I mean, fees were way too high. You know, the commissions were fixed by the government uh, at about 10 times what they are today and uh, well, so forth. it's free today, so <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, it's a lot more than yeah. uh, 10x. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I think there was a spirit of uh, uh, that we can improve people's lives, uh, you know, a real purpose to all of this. Now, Gene... Um, more on the, the research side, and I've thought my role in all of this would be more on the uh, application of the ideas. So you become Gene's teaching assistant. How did that come about? I uh, always I always picked the best student in the class mm -hmm. in the previous year to be the teaching so assistant. Good student. Next year. Yeah, he's the best of the class. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't have to laugh at that. I mean, it couldn't be true. <laughs> <laughs> So, best student, Professor Fama's teaching assistant, why not a career in academia? Well, uh, first off, I realized I could never compete with Gene. I mean, uh, <laughs> when you're at the top of the mountain. And, um, uh, but it's really something, uh, it caused me to reflect, in, you know, really internally, what, what am I about? What do I enjoy? And um, I, I, I just saw this as a great opportunity to go out and apply all these ideas. People were developing. Every new paper coming out was a landmark paper. It was, it was all brand new stuff, and uh, none of it was being applied. So we're going to come back to the application very shortly, but you mentioned that all these new groundbreaking, groundbreaking papers were coming out. Professor Farmer, your doctoral thesis in 1964 was the behavior of stock market prices, and this sentence jumps right off the page. Quote, chart reading, though perhaps an interesting pastime, is of no real value to the stock market investor. 
So this gets published in the Journal of Business in 1965. What sort of pushback do you get to the general concept that um, charts are of no use, past uh, market walk is of no future predictability to what happens going forward? Well, you got a lot of, a lot of pushback from the professionals. The academics looked at the data, looked at what, what people were saying, what they were showing, and adopted it right away. I mean, there was no pushback among the academics, really. It's really the beginning <clears throat> of, I mean, if you had to summarize really the impact of all this is um, what was going on in Chicago then really changed uh, the way people think about uh, investing. And that's really been the theme. And Gene has changed the way people think about investing more than that's that's the pre and post line, pre pharma and post pharma. Yeah. There's a sea change. Wait a not, minute, I don't like the post pharma business. <laughs> <laughs> meaning <laughs> meaning post publication right. of your work. Yeah, 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 right, right. Right. So, so we not only have your doctoral thesis, we mm-hmm. have the efficient market paper, we have the Pharma French three factor paper. There are a number of very, very influential papers that, David, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that changed the firmament of finance forever. Changed it forever and for the better. I mean, I get, uh, particularly in 2019, there's, among students, there's this kind of antipathy towards finance and economics, you know, uh, and they don't realize how much uh, finance has changed for the better. People's lives have been improved by these ideas and, and this research. Lower fees, better risk control, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, let's compare then and now a little more specifically, and we'll start by talking efficient markets. Back in the days when active managers were dominant, inefficiencies could still be easily found, as could <laughs> 2% fees. Professionals didn't believe markets were efficient, they thought they were kind of, sort of, eventually efficient. I doubt many of them would say that today. What do you think has changed to bring so many people over to the efficient market theory? Well, the accumulation of, of, of performance evidence. So back then, there was, there was no real evidence on how these people did. Uh, and one of the first papers was Mike Jensen's thesis here, which uh, studied mutual funds the previous 25 years, and showed that basically they weren't beating the market. Uh, and now we know on hindsight that, in fact, that has to be true, uh, that active management is a zero-sum game before cost because they, don't, they can't win from the passive managers because the passive people hold cap-weight portfolios. They don't, res- they don't overweight and underweight in response to what the active people do. So if they're... Anybody underweighting and overweighting, there has to be another active manager on the other side doing the opposite, which means if one wins, the other loses. So yep. the sum of those is zero before costs. Yeah, Bill Sharp after, has, has a funny right, way that, of That's it. Bill Sharp's uh, yeah. arithmetic of active management. Mm-hmm. He calls it the arithmetic because it is arithmetic. It's not a proposition. It has to be true. For every winner, there's an offsetting loser. Right. So what about technology? How does that impact how fast information makes its way into prices. Well, it, sh- it should make it better. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, prices are so volatile. Uh, markets have always looked really efficient. 
they don't look any more efficient than they, than they ever have with the introduction of all the new technology. So, so inf information is, is spread much more quickly now than it was 50 years ago because you have so many sources and they're so quick. Uh, but you can't really see in the data that that's had a, a quantum effect on the adjustment of prices to information. So we may not be able to see it explicitly in the data, but when we look at things like hedge fund performance, they did very well before the financial crisis. Since then, not as well. We look at the money flows away from expensive active towards inexpensive passive. It sounds like lots of investors are voting with their dollars that, hey, the market is efficient and we can't beat it. Doesn't it seem like technology is driving some of that? Because there used to be information asymmetries. There used to be inefficiencies that a savvy manager might have been able to find. It sounds like it's even harder to find those inefficiencies today than 30 years ago. Um, you have better information than I do because it's... it's You're saying it's, it's the it's same. Al it's always looked hard. It's always been it's that always way. Been, it's always been zero-sum game. Yeah, hmm. I've been in the business now almost 50 years, and every year people say next year is going to be the stock pickers. It's going to be a stock pickers market. What Gene's saying is it's Can't be. arithmetically <laughs> impossible. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about um, index funds. Gene, you introduced David when he is finishing his MBA and wants to go out into the world uh, of work to John McGowan over at Wells Fargo, where they were developing as an institutional product the first index fund. What made you think that that was a good fit for, for David? Oh, well, Mac McQuown, who was in charge of the Wells Fargo unit, came to all the seminars we did here for business people. We did them twice a year. The Center for Research and Securities Prices ran seminars for interested uh, business people, and Mac came to all of them, and he seemed very you know, into the new stuff. And so when it came time that David said, I see what you do, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> As an academic. Right. So I called Mac and said, I have a really good student here if you've got a place for him, and he, he did. So what was your experience like at Wells Fargo working on that index fund? Well, it was a terrific experience, great exposure. Um, uh, I learned the importance of uh, uh, client work. I mean, uh, the investment business is part technology or investment science, and it's part uh, client uh, work. And as I've told Gene, you know, I studied finance for two years. I've been studying client uh, work for the last uh, 48. <laughs> you know, and that was, we, uh, we were so naive about uh, uh, dealing with clients and what they would be interested in. And we were so pumped up, jazzed up about the, the ideas. Somehow uh, um, we missed the mark. And actually my group got, uh, was unsuccessful and got shut down. But there were, um, the other parts of the bank kept it going. And now that little uh, project we started ended up as, uh, through various hands is now a big part of uh, BlackRock. So, so let's, that's right, it eventually ended up going to Barclays, and then BlackRock buys yeah. them, and now iShares. Yeah. Uh, I think they're coming up on 6 or $7 trillion. Yeah, right. Not, too, not too shabby. Um, but let's talk about the application of Gene's theories to the practice of working with clients. 
Post-Wells Fargo, you decide to open uh, the small micro-cap fund out of your second bedroom in an apartment in Brooklyn. Tell us how you applied Professor Farmer's research to that micro-cap fund. Well, the first thing is um, uh, we decided um, not to have uh, run the portfolio like an index fund, even though at first we called it an index fund because it's very similar to indexing, with the final step being um, uh, that we don't trade uh, market on close like many index funds do. Um, and what that means is we, were, we would be trading stocks throughout the day. Well, that created a lot of skepticism, uh, particularly among academics, because you're going to the marketplace. You know you don't have any undiscounted information. People on the other side of your trade, largely institutions, think they know a lot about this stock. You know, why won't they just rip your eyes out when you're trading? That's mm-hmm. that's a, a quite legitimate question. Uh, so what's but, the answer? Well, I mean, the, the answer is there are a lot of things you can do to use the energy of markets and the power of markets to your advantage. And it turns out, for example, if we want to buy a stock, let's say, um, if an institution wants to sell it, their anxiety is greater than ours. So we can use that their interest in trying to do a quick trade to our advantage and, and uh, protect ourselves. And there's you know, plenty of, uh, of information now floating out about a stock that you can use to protect yourself. But that wasn't known back then. It was just we had a belief in markets, belief in, in how they work uh, based on what we studied here and said, look, we think we can go out and trade these stocks and not, uh, not get killed. That there were two, two theses done here on small stock returns, and most of the academics said, well, looks good in terms of the crisp historical data, but in fact, if you try to trade it, you're going to get swamped by trading costs. Uh, and that was the so-called market microstructure stuff. And then we figured out with, what we found out what dimensional was. No, you really didn't have to, have to pay those big bid-ass spreads that you were seeing. You could go... If you were a patient trader, you could do better with, with the prices. So we could deliver the small stock uh, premium. But uh, previous to that, people weren't able to capture the premium because it. of the spreads. <laughs> what, what the academics learned was their market microstructure stuff was garbage, basically. <laughs> they didn't really understand it. So. Now, interesting, uh, uh, what we learned about clients along the way, which was, see, in, in 1981, big, uh, our, our initial clients were all large, the largest pension funds, essentially, insurance companies around the world, and they weren't holding the stocks of small companies. <laughs> so really the pitch, uh, we got into all this stuff, but we had an even easier argument, which was, look, you ought to hold stocks of large companies and small, and you're not holding small, so we'll give you access to small. So that was the, uh, really the sales pitch that uh, put us on the map. And so that sales pitch starts to take off and dimensional operating out of your apartment gets bigger. There's kind of an urgent, urban legend that you called New York Telephone to have them add six phone lines, and they refused. They thought you were running a bookie joint. <laughs> yeah. Is that remotely true? Yeah, this was back uh, kind of at the bottom of Brooklyn Heights, uh, uh, bottom of its history. It's, uh, so uh, we started on a shoestring. We ran the portfolio. I was the first portfolio manager. ran out of my spare bedroom. So I knew we needed more phone lines. So uh, I called up uh, the New York Telephone, which was a telephone company at the time. Said I need you know, uh, some telephone lines. And, you know, 
six or eight or whatever, and they, they thought I was a bookie, so they wouldn't give me the lines. So I had to call up the treasurer of New York Tell, say, ah, you know, can you send some people down here and give me some telephone lines? And they went around the whole block and found that there were six lines avail available uh, in the whole block that, uh, based on their equipment. And they said, okay, you can have those six lines. And that's how we got started. And the punchline is he becomes a client. Yeah, yeah, right. New York Tell was a client, became a client, yeah. So, so from, from day one, Gene is a board member of Dimensional Funds from the day it launches? Well, even before. I mean, as, once before. we got the, the idea to start the firm, uh, uh, my first call was to Gene, saying, look, you know, it's been 10 years since I was uh, in school. We, uh, uh, there's been a lot of research. You know, we, we, need to, we need to have uh, access to you know, new research and thinking. And would you be on the, you know, one of the founders and and uh, and and be our you know our, our eyes uh, on in terms of research? And he agreed to do that right away. Who who else did you recruit from GSB? Well, eventually we found out we had to have we wanted to create a mutual fund, and a mutual fund has to have a an independent board of directors. So uh, Rex and I went over to the business school, walked into Merton Miller's office. I'm, they still teach Miller Modigliani theorems, don't they? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, uh, so Merton was there. We said, uh, you know, yada, yada, small company fund, need independent directors. And um, Merton said, oh, sure. Then I walked out uh, the door and down the hall. And Myron Scholes was coming out of his office. I go, Myron. Yeah, uh, yada, yada. See, they, to Gene's point, this business school was a lot smaller then. And having been in the PhD program, you kind of, Got to know the faculty uh, pretty well. So uh, Myron uh, agreed to join and, and so on and so forth. So it, uh, in fact, until recently, all the independent directors of the, of the mutual fund, our mutual fund, have, been, uh, have taught at Chicago. So well, his, his business partner, Rick Sinkfield, was in my class as well. Mm -hmm. and he was really the first one to put out an index fund, wasn't he? I mean, uh, no, no, no. It was the first S&P 500 index fund. Oh, okay, was it? Okay. But, he, but Rex... Actually, that was when I was his teaching assistant. Yeah. He took uh, uh, Gene's class, and Rex was always uh, one of these pain in the neck as a teaching assistant students because he was interested in everything, you know. And uh, so. so, so Gene, you move pretty easily back and forth between academic theory and real-world application of, yeah, of the theories. <laughs> Not a lot of people are able to bridge that gap between yeah. academics and well, the I hadn't, I hadn't been able to bridge it either until Dimensional came along. But here it is. It's 40 years later, right, and you right. seem to continue to be... Right, because he, he, uh, the reason I couldn't is because, one, it's hard to shut me up. I don't take a party line too, too, too easily. And he, he didn't ever... Although he and Rex never said, would you please do this? What they said was... You do what you do, and we'll figure out if we can use any of it. And that fits in with the way I work, so. <laughs> Frequently, he would come in and say, look, uh, get, get ready to make a presentation to our clients. They go, you know, I don't know if your clients are going to want to hear this. I go, look, Gene, you know, say what's on your mind. Spin controls my department, you know? And that seems to have worked out. Yeah, yeah. So what was your involvement with the investment committee in, in the early days of Dimensional um, were you participating actively in it? Were you managing it? What, what were you doing? 
Well, I was doing this back and forth with the research uh, stuff, but then they started a, uh, a fixed income fund based on fixed income research I had done in the 70s. And they said, do you want to come in and trade it for a day? And I said, sure, I've never traded anything. <laughs> so, so, so I went in, and how much money did we have? We had $10 million from somebody? Yes. And I managed to buy $20 million of bonds. <laughs> and that was a big problem, actually. <laughs> so wait, so wait. Gene Fama, right. day trader. Right. Yeah. I just want to make sure yeah, I understand. We had to, that was the last day we let him up there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I couldn't see the problem. How can you complain about getting $2 for every dollar you have? That's right. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Um, so you introduce a, the Fama French paper on value in 1992. Dimensional Funds introduces a U.S. large value and U.S. small value in 93. Another Fama French paper leads to international value coming out in 1994. That paper won a Graham and Dodd Award of Excellence. Was there anyone else trying to apply this sort of academic research to either investing theory or the creation of investable products? On the margin, there, there are always kind of... Um um, departments of big banks that people were kind of playing around with it. But we were the only ones willing to stand up and say, uh, um, this is what we believe and this is what we think you ought to do. Um, now there, we have, with all the quant managers out there, we got tons of people uh, uh, out there, you know, uh, trying to apply the same data. But back then, uh, we basically were it. In fact, I often go around and show people 30-year track record on various funds. Um, and uh, I go, you know, we had a lot of competition back then, but they don't seem, nobody seems to have a 30-year track record other than us, you know. Uh, they, they did not survive long enough they to... They didn't survive, yeah. So let me fast forward um, a couple of decades to the mid-2000s. In 2008, David Booth made the largest donation ever given to a business school, uh, which has been called a transformational gift... Tell us about your thinking. What made you decide in the middle of the financial crisis to say, I know, I want to make a donation to my alma mater? Well, it was um, kind of a, ties into the story I talked about earlier. I mean, what, uh, it, it got to be the stage where it was time to pay back. And um, um, I mean, I wouldn't have been anywhere without Chicago. Uh, so I said, I want to give a big chunk of what I have. And uh, um, this was a mix of stocks and cash. Is that correct? Uh, it was um, actually um, 
I didn't have a lot of cash at that time. It was uh, it, because we just uh, recently started to accumulate the money, get big enough to. Uh, but I had stock in the firm, and mm -hmm. so I gave them basically ownership of uh, uh, a big chunk of the of the stock that I had, and um, they were willing to take a bet on that, and uh, it turned out to be a good bet. And that that comes with a dividend, which continues yeah. to pay its way to. Uh, to, to Booth, were you at all concerned that you were right in the middle of a financial crisis giving ownership of a financial firm? A lot of firms did not make it through the financial crisis. Yeah, maybe it ties in with the earlier question about what I learned from here about markets and how they work. And uh, you have to kind of keep in the depth of the financial crisis, you kind of have to keep reminding people, you know, markets are where buyers and sellers come together. And in a voluntary transaction, both sides of a trade have to feel like they have a good, they got a good deal or they don't trade. They don't trade. So, you know, there's a lot of trading volume activity and a lot of well-known investors investing. And it's just, you know, one of those, um, those comfortable, those markets were functioning the way they, they ought to function. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. Gene, how did David's gift impact the Graduate School of Business? Uh, it was... <laughs> It was a, a big lot of cash flow that was not there beforehand, so it, <laughs> it gave rise to lots of research centers, uh, I think, and it made everybody feel as if the future was more or less assured. Um, and the university also got a, a pretty good <laughs> take out of it, so, mm -hmm. as they always do. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, you tell a, a charming story about sitting with the dean... And you, it wasn't your intention for this originally to be a naming gift. They seem to have brought that up to you. Can you yeah, can right. You... No. I said I wanted, um, as for the reasons I outlined, I wanted to, to make a gift and a big part of what I have. Um, and so this is what I want to do. And uh, the dean, Ted Snyder, at the time said, gosh, uh, we were looking to have a naming gift for the business school. This is a lot better deal than that, uh, what we're <laughs> looking for. So uh, we'll name the school after you. I go, oh, okay, whatever. You know? <laughs> so since then, the school has continued to grow in, in both reputation and number of students and the offerings here. Um, and then fast forward uh, five years after that, Gene gets a phone call from Sweden. Let's talk a little bit about that. What was your experience like? Uh, did the phone call manage to reach you? Tell us, uh, tell us what that was like. Well, they, 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 I think they call it uh, early in the morning, noon, right? Noon or one o'clock Stockholm time, which is really early in the morning. I think it's about five or six o'clock. So I don't know. You, you, you never expect to get it because a lot of people could qualify to to get it when you get it. Somehow, they, the people here somehow had a guess or whatever. I don't know why because there were newspaper people at my door. Ten, <laughs> ten minutes later, mm -hmm. after the after the call, and they wanted to come in my house. <laughs> and I said, "No way." <laughs> but you're on your way to class. Well, I had a class that morning, and you don't you don't get a special dispensation when well, you win the Nobel you Prize. You skip class. You could, but I had never missed a class in all the years I'd been teaching. In fifty so years. I, yeah, I, I wasn't going to start now. <laughs> so, and I wasn't going to let anybody in because. The kids in the class were paying a lot of money to take that course. <laughs> so no way I wanted people from the outside disturbing it. So, so we, David, you ended up going to Stockholm with Gene. What, what was that experience like? Oh, it's uh, 
Um, well, of course, being Chicago trained, I'd been to the ceremony before with when, when Myron and Bob uh, Merton got their Nobel. So, you know, it's you're kind of used to this if you third times the charm. So, third so, third times the charm. Is third that what you're times, saying? yeah. So uh, the uh, so I, I, I said to Gene, give, give me a night uh, to uh, organize something special. So uh, I talked. Uh, uh, Abba has a museum in Stockholm that had just opened. And I talked them into running me out the uh, uh, museum for the evening. So Gene, you know, he has four kids, and at that time about eight grandkids, and they're all uh, big music fans. And so uh, the Abbott Museum has a lot of uh, um, uh, things you can do to have fun. And um, one of them is a, a big stage with a scrim on it and, and with four ABBA musicians singing and with a microphone right in the middle. And so you, it looks like you're singing with them. And so I looked, so this went on, they were, the kids, the kids went wild. I looked over at Gene and Sally and they, I could see that they were, they were having fun. So it made it special for me. So the whole thing some people have described as surreal. What was your, your surreal. experience? <laughs> the day of, the day after. So they had a big event here at the school. Really a big event. I mean, with the news and everything. The, the uh, circles around the building were all full of students. Um, and the next day, the Nobel people have a camera committee, and they're following me across the, the Harper Center, uh, the, the big atrium in the, in the middle. And the students are working along the sides. And we walk down the middle. Nobody looks up. <laughs> so we get to the other side, and the television guy says, nobody looked up. And I said, this is the University of Chicago. If they had to look up every time a Nobel Prize winner walked by, they'd get nothing done. <laughs> And, and to show you how true that is, David Booth and Gene and I get in an elevator on four to come down here, and a student gets in wearing headphones, turns around, doesn't say a word to either of you, and the four of us rode down in silence. He was completely oblivious to who was in the elevator with him. So I'm always fascinated by that sort of stuff. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about... Um, some other things that you've written about and, and the two of you have applied. One of the quotes of Professor Fama's that I enjoy is, quote, why is anyone even reading Wall Street research, unquote. So I have to ask you, why do people read Wall Street research? I don't know. It's, 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 it's businessman's pornography, basically. Business-based pornography. Yeah, it's, it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about value. I'm going to try and reel yeah, this back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's talk about value and growth. Value has a tendency to go through these longer periods where growth is beating it. And over the past decade, it's been, if you weren't in big cap U.S. growth, um, you were underperforming. Everything has been um, the S&P 500 when we look at emerging markets, we look at small cap, we look at value. Heaven forbid you're an emerging market small cap value. It's been terrible. What sort of lessons should investors take from this extended period of growth, growth beating value? Well, the, the question they want to ask is, is value dead? Okay, let's ask. So uh, Ken and I are actually writing a paper on this at the moment, but the, the bottom line is there's so much volatility in these premiums 
that you can't tell if the premium has changed or, or not. It may have changed, it may not. You just can't tell. It's, it's, you're well within the range of chance experience. The, the, the poor return experience is well within the range of chance over the time that it's, that it's occurred. So you really can't say anything. So, so uh, there have been other periods of time where value is done poorly. I remember hearing in 98 and 99, this value investor was washed up, this right. guy named Warren Buffett. He doesn't know what he's doing. And typically when you hear that, it's usually at the end, towards <laughs> the end of that period of underperformance. Um, you're suggesting we won't know for some period of time if the value premium is gone or if it's just a regular cyclical underperformance? Well, see, I don't think there are real cycles to it. I think it's just kind of random that mm -hmm. you go through good and bad uh, periods, and you, don't, you can't recognize them except after the fact. Right. Uh, you can't really predict them. Uh, we've, we've tried tests. We've tried predictive tests, and they, they have marginal. Uh, value, no, nothing worth even uh, focusing, focusing on. So basically, you're stuck with the volatility of equity returns. They don't allow you to say very much about what's happened to expected returns going forward. And and David, what, we've seen a huge proliferation of various factor funds, not just the three factor or the five factor or the seven factor model. There are now hundreds identified. <laughs> What, what does this mean uh, for investors? Has, has the proliferation of all these new factors been good for investors, or is it a non-event? Well, I mean, I think uh, on balance, um, um, it's been overstated, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, the, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, research has identified, you know, factors that seem to explain differences in average returns. But there can't be hundreds of, of factors. I mean, they got to... They're probably, at the end of the day, they're probably a few factors. Uh, and Gene and Ken, one of the things they try to do is, instead of trying to identify more and more factors, is take the researches out there and, and can it. condense it down to simpler, you know, more... Factors that matter. Factors that matter. Well, lots, and, of, lots of these things are just different manifestations of the same thing. G so give us an example. So value can be measured in many different ways. I can use the book-to-market ratio. I can use cash flow to price. I can use lots of different variables to identify what is basically this, the same thing. Uh, and <laughs> there are thousands of finance professors out there who all want to get tenure. Um, they have to publish to do that. Uh, so they're all just kind of searching through the data, finding stuff that may be there only on a chance basis. And it won't be there out of sample. So there's lots of work being done and that remains to be done on what we call robustness. How does this stand up when I have new data? So yeah. we, we've always been into robustness in the sense that when we found the, in the 92 paper, we went back and collected the data back to, we, that data started in, nine, in 63. We then went back and collected the data back to 26 to look out a sample. And then we looked at the international data to look out a sample. And then we saw pretty much the same thing everywhere. Um, now we've had a bad period of this, but relative to all of that, it doesn't look that doesn't look that serious. And and I have to ask you a question about behavioral economics. Um, we're here in Chicago, where we could sort of call it the birthplace of behavioral finance. What do you think about that area, and and what's your involvement with it? Well, <laughs> my good friend Richard Thaler, who is the the king of the 
behavioral finance people. And, and another Nobel laureate right. that, that no I, one notices. I tease well, them and say, I'm, I'm the most important person in behavioral finance. You are. I am. Why is that? Because most of the behavioral finance is just a criticism of efficient markets. <laughs> so without me, what have they got? <laughs> And, and you and, and Dick Thaler are golf partners, right, aren't you? Right. So do you argue across 18 holes? or No, the reality is we agree on the facts. We disagree on the interpretation. Ah, okay. So, um, for example, he thinks the value premium is the result of uh, people's misperceptions of what accounting information and other information looks like. It's all based on misinterpretation of information. Now, if you believe that, then you think it should go away. Because it's possible to teach people that they have these, these, these biases. Our professional managers should be able to uh, get, get past them. But they still have emotional reactions that sometimes right, they can't right, right. get by. Well, that, that, <laughs> that, that's the thing about behavioral economics. What, what their studies seem to show is people don't learn from experience. If you're stupid, you're repeatedly stupid. You don't, you don't learn. And most people are stupid. I mean, that's the, whole, that's the proposition. Someone has to be on the wrong side of that trade. You said it's a zero sum, right? right. So, so you guys agree more than you, than you might realize. Well, we agree on the facts. Yeah, but not the interpretation. No. But so, there, there, there is no behavioral finance. Wait, say that again? There is no behavioral finance. There's no it such... is all just a criticism of efficient markets. Really? With no evidence. Is Dick here? <laughs> I think he would disagree with that. So well, I'm, let's... I'm not so sure. Because when I, when I put the challenge to him 20 years ago, I wrote a paper that said, okay, now, you've been criticizing us for the last whatever. It's time for you to come up with a theory that we can actually test and see if it works or not. And what was still, his response? We're still waiting. <laughs> well, actually, you presented that paper at, a, at, a, at UCLA, at a, yeah. and Gene walks in and says, on the way over, I was thinking about breaking my leg or something to, so I could catch some sympathy here. <laughs> and, and to be fair, when Thaler won the Nobel Prize, he admitted his plan was to spend the money as irrationally as possible. So even he, even he uh, agrees with you on that. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, some of your comments on beta. In 1993, you said... Beta is dead. Do you still believe beta is dead? Well, the evidence basically says that the relation between average return and beta is too flat to be explained by the capital asset pricing model. That's a real shame because that model is so simple. Um, if it were true, it would really be really make life a lot simpler in, in, in many ways. Um, but it just has never worked very well. All right, so what we're going to do now, I have more, many more questions, but this thing is lighting up, and we have questions from the audience. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask a few from this and see, uh, see where we go from here. Uh, let's talk about your views on the future of active management. Where do you see the industry going in 10 years? And this is for both of you. Active management? Active management. Well, it's been shrinking really slowly. Uh, so when Ken did his... Uh, American Finance Association president Ken, Ken French, French uh, did his president speech. He, what he said was one of the things he said was, "We've gone from zero to twenty percent in I think it was about forty years at that time, maybe a little more. And since then, we've gone to like I think it's up to thirty or forty now. That's passively managed. So 
that's permeated very slowly through the through the profession. What where it'll go from there, we'll see. And and some people have made the argument you have to separate active from expensive. Low cost active is attractive. Obviously, this is a key tenant at dimensional funds. How much of the move away from active has been, really been away from expensive? I think a big part of it. Um, in fact, a lot of the move to indexing is through ETFs, and a lot of the a lot of that is just a new version of active management, um, where managers say, "Look, I don't think I can pick individual stocks, but I can time sectors of the market. So let me buy uh, uh, buy ETFs." So it's really kind of confusing as to uh, you know what the trend has been in active management. But I I, I think active managers are resourceful and will always come up with new ideas of trying to entice people with, with magic. With magic. So the pushback against um, efficient market, I, we always see this argument. Berkshire Hathaway had strong returns in its early years as a result of Warren Buffett's skill in security selection. How, given Professor Fama's comments on market efficiency, how can this early ex success be explained? <laughs> so you take... You have probably 100,000 people picking stocks, right? Right. Over a period of time. Then you pick out the, the one who does the best and, and, and impute that to skill. The problem is, if I have 100,000 people picking, what's the probability that one of them will look extraordinary purely on a chance basis? You'll, you'll always have some outliers that look extraordinary. You'll get a big outlier in that, in that experiment. But that's the way the, the newspaper accounts run. They, take after, they look after the fact and they pick out the winners. So every year, for example, they pick out the best performers of the last five, ten years. Then you look at the following period, no, no, no correlation between past success. And, and, and in fact, we've seen the Morningstar Manager of the Year tends to significantly outperform, underperform in the decade once they win Manager of the Decade. Well, that would surprise me too. I'd, I would think they'd just be random after that. <laughs> no, no persistency. Right. In fact, right. negative persistency. Right. We've had theses on that subject here. How much persistence is there in performance? The answer is basically zero. Zero. And I, I well, have to... The best predictor of future performance is fees and expenses. That, you know, it's ironic. That Wrong came sign. out of Morningstar right. that did a big study, and they sell their Morningstar rating, and it turned out, ignore everything else, just pick the cheapest fund. Pretty, pretty astonishing. Right, well, they came out, I think they came out and said... Came out and said there's no relation between future performance and the way we rank things. There's another question that comes after that, though. So, so um, one, one of the questions that is asked by the room, if the market becomes truly efficient one day, what happens to all of the management firms? That question assumes that markets aren't truly efficient today. How do you respond to that? <laughs> What's the evidence? No, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I, I think all of it is wrong. So it's, it's different. There will still be a management business. Mm -hmm. It just will have very little active in it. So the, the, you have to have some active investors to make price, prices efficient. The, the problem is you don't expect them to be professional managers because the logic of being a good investor is that you should get the returns. Right. You don't hand them back to other people. You take them back in higher fees. You know, that's a human capital uh, Activity is picking stocks or whatever you, uh, investment management. So if you have real skill, you should be charging. It should all go, all the return should go to you, not to your clients. And and this is for both of you. 
What sort of opportunity for outperformance do you see in private markets, given that information in that space is so much more opaque yeah. than in public markets? Well, the, the problem is there are lots of good people studying that, but they're hamstrung by the, the lack of good data on people who live and people who die. Mm-hmm. The fund, you know, the managers who live and the managers who die. What's self-reported? It's not it's like mutual funds where they right. have to report right. it. So you get you get a, you get a very bu- kind of biased set of data on that. But you know, it's kind of a depends on what, what end of that business you go to. If you're looking at managers who actually run the companies that they buy, they may actually be able to add value, but it's management value. It's not stock picking uh, value. If they, you're picking companies that are, have a good idea but are poorly run. Probably you can have a lot of value added in that case. But again, it should go to the guys doing it, not to the investors. That's the, that's the downside of that. They're the ones who take all the profits out of it, well, not, not I mean, the investors. That's, that's the logic of human capital, right? right? And we didn't get to a question before I, I have to ask about bubbles. And this goes back to behavior. That's a swear, by the way. But. It, okay, so um, I don't know how to bleep out the word bubbles, but... <laughs> What do you mean by a bubble? Okay, so <laughs> folks like Thaler and Schiller would describe a bubble as a period of excessive market enthusiasm that leads prices to far outstrip their fundamental valuation. So what, what's the testable proposition there, though? I don't know. Can you, well, the way I interpret it is you must be able to predict the end of it. A bubble has to be something with a predictable ending. So it has to be measurable by right. a predefined right, set right, of parameters, right. and you should be able to identify right, the right, end of it. Right. So if they, we were to say... You fail the test every time on that one. Fails the test. Right. I mean, I mean you, you can't... People can't identify bubbles that way. Until after the fact. After the fact, it's, it's easy, but there's this famous story around about you know, the early origins of market efficiency, in which Holbrook Working went into the faculty lounge at Stanford he was did agricultural uh, prices, and he showed them charts of, of of prices, and he said these were charts of commodity prices, and he wanted to know see if they could identify bubbles in the prices, and they every to a man they all could. There were no women. <laughs> to a man they all could. The problem was what he was showing them was cumulative random numbers. It was, it was all just generated uh, stuff. So that the message there is people see bubbles where there are none. Uh, so here's a, here's a really broad question. Um, given the societal angst of people attacking the value of a business education, what is your belief in the value of this education here at Booth, and how should we communicate this better to society? Well, I think it's, it's incredibly valuable to society um, because if we are going to make lives better for people, part of the answer has to come from better and safer financial products. And just, that's the reality. And that's been the history. I mean, it's like I say, I look back on my career and uh, working with Gene, and you know, we've been part of a, uh, a movement towards lower fees and better controls. So I find it irritating when somebody says, really, the only advance in the last 50 years has been the ATM. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, that was Paul Volcker's quip. Yeah. <laughs> We've lives based on all this work. Live, we've improved lives, uh, and, and other people with sharing the ideas. We're not the only one, but uh, I mean, I, I don't think it gets much better than that. And uh, so I, 
I would hate to have people um, not get into business or particularly financial services. You can have a good career in financial services, and at the end of it, you can look back on it and take pride in what you've accomplished. It's as simple as that. So, so that leads to the next question. What keeps both of you working? Neither of you have to work. Why do both of you still get up and go to the office each day? It's fun. It's fun. Challenging. Yeah. It's important. I mean, yeah. it's exciting to see retired people living better uh, as a result of these ideas or better able to send their kids to college or whatever. I mean, these are, these are not, you know... Uh, ideas that have no importance. I mean, these are, you know, that's, you can get behind that kind of idea. You get a lot of satisfaction out of coming up with stuff people haven't seen before or haven't recognized. And we have time for one last question, and I'm going to go with something about um, what do you think the future of Chicago Booth looks like? What is next in store for the school? And this is for both of you. Well, I can tell you that the so I've been on the faculty since 1963, a student since 1960. In the 60s, basically, there was a pretty good economics group. There was a developing finance group, and that was it. I mean, the rest of the school was junk. <laughs> right. Now, well, but that, that was not unique to us. So I remember when I was recruiting as a student um, in college, not, in, not from here, uh, the, the people recruiting said, why do you want to go to a business school? They don't teach you anything. We don't pay anything for, for, what, they, for, for what they do. And that was true at, at that time, I think. And what's happened through time is not just finance, but every other area has been academically made more, become more successful. So marketing, accounting, statistics was always pretty good, but it was never part of, uh, of, uh, of business schools. So now we have really front rank faculty in every single uh, discipline. The school is so high-level high competitive on the faculty side, on the research side, but it's just there's no relation to what it was 50 years ago. It's, it's a totally different professional uh, place. On the student side, I think there is a challenge, and I've been complaining about it for a long time. Students don't work as hard as they did in, in the old days. So, I've heard this is a very, very difficult school to work your way through. Well, but the reality is we, we keep track of hours worked per, per, per class, out of class. Mm-hmm. When I started teaching, everybody was around 15 per class. That number has dropped dramatically through time. I, I bet this room would disagree with that. No, no. <laughs> no, no, we have the statistics. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a guess. And, and David, what do you see as the next decade holding for the Booth School? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not really in a position to, I mean, uh, I just gave them some money. I figured <laughs> they can figure that stuff out. If I had to figure that out as well, I mean, I, I would be a, a real hero. No, I, I'm just, uh, um, I'm not, I don't know where, where it's going to go, but wherever it goes is going to be important. And, and that's the perfect spot to end. Ladies and gentlemen, please say thank you to Professor Gene Fama and David Booth. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's my conversation with David Booth and Gene Fama. If you enjoyed that, well, go to Apple iTunes, look up an inch or down an inch, and you could see any of the nearly 300 conversations we've had uh, over the past five years.
We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a review at Apple iTunes. Sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together this week. And this week was an unusual expedition. We all had to schlep out to Chicago. The folks at the University of Chicago were great. They did a really great job uh, in setting things up so that we could both videotape and audio record this. Uh, Michael Boyle is my producer, and he was on hand there along with a few other folks from Bloomberg that really made everything go very smoothly. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer who helped cut this monstrosity together. Uh, Tika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.